Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. There was tragedy in the national park system this past week when a 14-year-old Utah girl riding in her family's car was killed by a rockfall at Glacier National Park in Montana. Elsewhere, we saw Bryce Canyon National Park finally obtain certification as an international dark sky park, and the Trump administration moved to make substantive changes to the Endangered Species Act. You can read those and other stories about the parks on nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we spend some time with Carolyn Ward, the CEO of the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation, to see what that organization is working on in the parkway. Their projects range from restoring the Bluffs restaurant to underwriting an intern who helps park biologists propagate rare and threatened plants in a plant nursery. Erica Zambello takes a look at peregrine falcons at Acadia National Park in Maine, and we wrap up the show with a look at Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park in Colorado. The Blue Ridge Parkway is one of the most beautiful roads in America, and it was designed to be that way. It was developed to bring motorists slowly through the Blue Ridge Mountains, from Shenandoah National Park down to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, a distance of 469 miles on a road that rises from a low point of 649 feet above sea level at James River in Virginia to a summit of 6,047 feet above sea level at Richland Balsam in North Carolina. As with many other units of the national park system, the Blue Ridge Parkway is an oasis of beauty and calm in a landscape of great surrounding populations. And it takes an incredible effort to maintain the beauty and the integrity of the parkway, and the National Park Service alone can't do that job. That the parkway has a maintenance backlog of roughly $500 million is evidence of that. That's where the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation comes in. This nonprofit organization does an incredible job helping the Park Service maintain the parkway. To help us look at that task, we're joined today by Carolyn Ward, the Foundation's CEO. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you for having me, Kurt. So how's summer going along the parkway? Well, summer's very busy this year, as it is every year on the Blue Ridge Parkway. We have more visitors than Yellowstone, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon combined. And summer is one of the peak seasons, fall being the most visited season along the Blue Ridge Parkway. So facilities are bustling with families and and folks alike to enjoy the the scenic beauty of the parkway. Well, that's good to hear. It's uh, definitely a time of year to to get out and enjoy our national parks. You know, you mentioned uh, fall is your peak season. Here in the Rockies, where I'm located, we're kind of already looking at fall. Um, it's getting a little chilly in the evenings, uh, down into the 40s, and it won't be long before it gets down into the 30s. But um, we're still going to try and uh, make the most out of what weeks of summer remains. You know, one thing that the um, the Parkway Foundation is really involved with, and, and, I, and I mentioned that, is not just helping the Park Service um, maintain the, the Blue Ridge Parkway, but really bringing some innovative and, and incredible um, projects to life, as well as helping, unfortunately, do the, the, the daily maintenance work around the Park Service, around the Blue Ridge Parkway, rather. But, but looking at your website, um, you guys have a whole bunch of projects that um, you're working on all at the same time. Yeah, as you said in the beginning, there is no 
lack of work and opportunity for partner groups such as ourselves in working with the Blue Ridge Parkway and, and parks across the country. There is no lack of need. And so one of the things that we do a lot is to try to help fund projects and programs that the park could not otherwise do. Um, some some are basic operations. Many groups like ourselves used to be sort of the icing on the cake and and doing the added value things, but we find ourselves more and more being requested to do some basic operations, repairing facilities, providing some maintenance support, opening facilities, staffing. And so one of the things that we're doing is giving the Parkway this year about $1.5 million that will be used to help renovate historic structures, to provide education and interpretive opportunities for the traveling public, and to help protect our natural resources, many of which found along the Blue Ridge Parkway are in peril from things like poaching and invasive species. Another thing that we do at the foundation, besides trying to to assist the parkway in funding those things where they have a gap between what they need and, and what they receive from federal support, is running a couple key programs. We have a program called Kids in Parks that we run to try to get children unplugged and outside, reconnected with our parks and public lands. And we also assist in providing um, oversight for the music programming at the Blue Ridge Music Center. So once again, I think I think there is no lack of need and no lack of opportunity for folks in the community and partner groups such as ourselves to try to step in and, and help preserve and protect our iconic parks and places across the country. You know, one of the programs that you're involved with or projects is digitizing historic photos. Is that something that you're doing in-house within the foundation, or is that where you raise the money to um, basically commission experts outside to, to handle the digitation? That's one of the projects that we're providing the financial support for. Um, much of the work will be done in-house at the Park Service, and then they will use some funding support from us to bring in interns and others to help assist in digitizing some of that history. There is a tremendous amount of um, historical imagery uh, at the parkway and surrounding the parkway, and it's in boxes and and not digitized. And in this modern age, uh, accessing those kinds of images will be a tremendous benefit for people in the public and researchers alike, but we've got to get it all digitized first. So that's an example of one of the projects where we provide the funding support and the park service oversees the work. And do you know how that um, once they're digitized, they'll be um, available to to researchers and and I assume the general public to view? They are going to be available on a public access site where you should be able to search for particular subjects, topics, locations, and then be able to find some of those historic images. So we are really excited, not just about preserving those historic images, but by allowing the public to be able to access those. I mean, most of our, most of the folks that visit parks and public lands have memories that go back generations of those experiences and to be able to provide a searchable database of some of that historic iconic imagery is exciting. Yeah, no, it's an incredible resource, especially when you can do it from thousands of miles away. I know as a, as a writer um, who covers national parks, those types of resources really help when it comes to building a story and, and, and knowing um, what we're talking about and being able to describe things. You know, another, um, another one of your endeavors is um, 
upgrading the outdoor exhibits at Craggy Gardens. Yes, it's one of our exhibit projects. Um, we've got another one at Water Rock Knob. And both of those are sort of bringing into the 20th century the stories that we tell about the history and the natural resources um, around the parkway. And like most of our parks across the country, some of those exhibits are very dated. They were done 20 and 30 years ago. Some of the science has changed. Some of what we understand about those stories has evolved and changed. So we're putting some exhibits, uh, both at Craggy Gardens and Water Rock Knob, to tell the story of the elk, for example, that are repopulating along the Blue Ridge Mountains coming in from the Smokies, or at Craggy, the high elevation landscape and the fragile rare species that are located there to try to help educate our visitors so that we can better protect those resources. Now, in terms of those high elevation species at uh, Craggy Gardens, that's... uh... I guess one of the resource issues that the the Park Service is struggling with, and and by that I'm referring to the need to to mow um, areas of that uh, site to prevent the intrusion of trees and shrubs. And I guess the Park Service doesn't quite have all the personnel they need to to do it as often as they had hoped. No, that's right. And that's the case with many of the uh, resource protection projects and programs along the parkway. Uh, I think right now there's about 37% of the staffing positions along the parkway that are vacant and cannot be filled because there is not enough operation budget to do that. Uh, are, are those full-time? A, a sad, I'm sorry. Full-time those... positions. Yeah, wow. full-time positions. And that's... that's um. Fairly typical. I think at the Blue Ridge Parkway, about 85% of the money that they receive from the federal budget is used for staffing. And that doesn't leave a lot to actually do anything, buy anything, uh, upgrade equipment. Um, And so one of the struggles that we face and the parkway faces is how to meet those ever-changing needs, like preserving those rare species up at Craggy and, and many others. When you're faced with those budget challenges, as I had said earlier, you know, the parkway receives more visitors than Yellowstone, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon combined, and yet it receives a fraction of the budget of any one of those parks. So they have about 16 million visitors a year, and they get a budget of about $16 million. That's $1 per visitor. And so it's not just things like mowing um, up at the Baltic Craggy to preserve the habitat for the, for the rare species, but it's mowing along the roadsides or emptying out the trash or protecting fragile species that are located other places along the parkway. And one of the things that the park's trying to do is use volunteers to try to help um, bridge that gap. Uh, Groups like us that can provide some funding to try to help do that. And one of the struggles that we face is, you know, what's the greatest need today? And there's no lack of those. And unfortunately, we often have to make trade-offs about which projects we're going to fund. Um, Every project the park requests from us is a critical need in all of our minds, but we just, our dollars don't go far enough to meet the need um, that the park has between their, their funding they receive and the actual amounts that they need to do the job the way that they did 20, 30 years ago. And of course, one of the problems that um, many folks might not realize is that unlike Yellowstone or Yosemite or, or Glacier, the Blue Ridge Parkway, uh, along with Great Smoky Mountains National Park, are two units that don't charge an entrance fee. And I would imagine that um, 
even a simple dollar per car entrance fee at Blue Ridge Parkway would, would double the park's resources or revenues. It would. It would double the budget. Um, and it is, it is good and bad. It's fabulous to be able to have the park be able to be free for people of any economic background or means to be able to come and experience our our history and the cultural stories that are captured here and drive through one of the most biodiverse places in the temperate world. It's an extraordinary opportunity for the citizenry of the United States to be able to have this kind of a resource that they can access for free. But I think that also then requires perhaps those of us with other means um, to think about philanthropy and think about ways that we can help preserve and protect our parks. You know, and I've wondered if, if simply putting out some donation boxes, um, you know, we had a, a question on National Parks Traveler the other day about um, what is the right dollar fee for an entrance charge to the parks. And a lot of people weighed in with different, you know, dollar amounts ranging from, you know, let's keep it at $25 per vehicle up to, you know, $400. But I wonder how many of those people would donate once they went through the, the entrance gate to a park? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting question. There are donation opportunities in the park, um, and several people do donate. We we receive a lot of donations and support from folks that might stumble across our donor board on, in the park. But it is one of those things, I think, that when you think about 16 million visitors coming in, the percentage of those that are giving back is relatively small. And so being able to get that word out to the traveling public that, you know, it is your park. These are our responsibility. These do belong to all of us. And when you think about the entire National Park Service budget is one-tenth of one percent of our federal budget. That's an extraordinary low investment when you think about the return that parks bring to us. Um, I think that every dollar you invest in our national parks returns $10 to local economies. It's an enormous investment. I wish my retirement return was that high. And so our parks are something that's worth investing in, not just for the economies of our local communities, but for our future and our, and our grandchildren's ability to have the kind of experiences that we may have had in our parks. You're absolutely right about that, Carolyn. We're visiting today with Carolyn Ward, the Chief Executive Officer of the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a minute. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Okay, we're back now with Carolyn Ward, the CEO of the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation, the nonprofit arm that does so much good in raising dollars to help the National Park Service um, maintain and improve the Blue Ridge Parkway. 
Carolyn, um, your organization has some very big um, projects that you're working on right now. One of them, of course, is uh, the Bluffs Restaurant. Last year, I believe it was, you you helped uh, the Park Service afford uh, replacing the roof on that uh, facility. And uh, now you're, you're working on the interior. Is that right? That's right. It is one of our largest projects that we're undertaking. It was uh, one of the first concession facilities open along the Blue Ridge Parkway in the 30s and 40s. It was a restaurant and lodge and worked uh, and served traveling visitors along for until um, about uh, 2013 is when it closed. And that facility has been shuttered since that time. And so we have worked to restore the roof. Right now, we're doing a complete interior renovation, all new kitchen equipment, um, tables, um, infrastructure, to once again be able to open that facility to the traveling public. It'll be one of only four opportunities along the Blue Ridge Parkway to get food. So we are very excited to see that project completed. We've invested about a million dollars in the renovation of the building and in outfitting it with new equipment. And I'm right now working on an RFP that will hit the streets very soon to seek an operator for that facility. We're um, The foundation is going to take over the operation of that building through the historic lease program with the National Park Service. They tried for several years to find a concession operator that would come in and take back over with no success. And so they are going to now um, try another route, which is partnering with us through that historic lease program um, so that we'll run and operate, but we'll be seeking an operator that will come in and, and run the restaurant and provide services once again at that fabulous site. And is it on track uh, to, to open in 2020? Right now we are on track to open in spring of 2020. The interior restoration and renovation should be done uh, by spring of next year. And we're working on a concurrent track to seek an operator. So we hope to have a con- an operator selected by late this fall um, that then would have up until like May or June, you know, we hope to get them on board by November, December of this year. And then they would then have the restaurant open by May or June of 2020. You know, that is so exciting. Um, I was a history minor in college and just the history that these national park units hold is is so, so incredible. And, and, and so, um, you know, so many families can can trace back uh, generations stopping at places like the Bluffs Restaurant and to have that back open again. I'm I'm guessing that there's a, a large population of uh, Parkway lovers who can't wait for that day. Oh, I have received more phone calls and emails about reopening the Bluffs than any other project that we have ever worked on, and it is exactly because of what you just said. The memories of people who are now in their 70s and can remember going there as a child and want to take their grandchildren back to that place. Um, It definitely holds a soft spot in, I would guess, thousands of people's hearts. And we have a lot of people that are very excited to once again have, have dinner or breakfast at the Bluffs. Yeah. Now, another huge project that you guys are undertaking is uh, work at the Moses Cone Memorial Park in the, the Cone Manor there. There's a lot of a lot of restoration and rehab that needs to be done there. 
Yeah, this is a project that's been probably the longest running project for the foundation. We started work on that uh, facility 20 years ago. Uh, it's one of the first projects the foundation has undertook, and we worked with the Park Service to, for example, get it uh, listed on the National Historic Registry and have done work on balusters and, and the carriage trails, 26 miles of historic carriage trails on the site there right outside of Blowing Rock on the Blue Ridge Parkway. And this is the um, sort of phase of the project where we're doing the restoration to the manor house itself, uh, built in the early 1900s, as any old house would do over time. It has degraded. And so we are investing, it's going to be about $1.4 million in an entire renovation and restoration of the exterior of the manor house. So every column, every window, the entire thing will be repainted and restored. That work is going to take place with the Denver Service Center, which is one of the main planning arms of the National Park Service. They're going to be working with us to complete that project. Work will begin next and should be completed by either the end of 2020 or the beginning of 2021. And we are extraordinarily excited about that project. It's a, an amazing, iconic, colonial revival-style mansion on a hill that was built by Moses Cone and his wife, Bertha. Moses Cone was known as the Denim King. He brought denim uh, widely to the United States and, and other places, and this was his retreat in the mountains, and it is an extraordinary um, manor house, and it will be uh, fabulous to see it brought back to its full glory. Now, the the foundation, uh, as you've noted, has raised millions of dollars over the years uh, on such projects as, you know, bringing the Bluffs restaurant back to life and restoring the the Moses Cone um, Manor. Once these projects are completed, Will the Park Service have the resources, both the dollars and the staff, to prevent them from deteriorating again? Well, I think that's a question that we should all ask ourselves. There are several bills that are working their way through um, the legislature, the Restore Our Parks Act. There are opportunities that we all have as individuals to support our parks and public lands. I think that it's, it's the same situation that our predecessors had over 100 years ago when they made decisions to set aside places and call them national parks and protect them and provide budgets to support their protection. I think we are now in that same pivotal place in time and history where we have some real soul-searching to do as a country about these places that are, in effect, our great cathedrals, our national parks, are our historic, iconic signatures and representatives of what America is. And whether or not we invest in preserving and protecting them now, we'll make the decision about what they're going to look like 100 years from now. And I hope that we all will stand behind our parks and public lands and that the investments we're making today are are going to be followed um, by similar and hopefully even greater investments in the future. If you own an old house or if you own a house, it's got to be painted every so often. Boards are going to warp. Windows are going to break. You have to continually do maintenance. It's not something that you can do once and just walk away from. 
And so keeping our parks and public lands in the kind of shape that they deserve to be kept in, I mean, after all, they were set aside in perpetuity. And and that means that we have to continually invest to keep them in good shape. So my hope is that we will, uh, Kurt, that folks will step up and and our government and our citizens that make up our government will will decide that these things are important and worth preserving and protecting. It's certainly something to watch as uh, Congress comes back to work this fall to see if they can get that legislation passed through to generate a revenue flow. I think it's six and a half billion dollars over a five-year period to at least uh, cut into that roughly twelve billion dollar maintenance backlog that the park system is facing. <clears throat> One other item I wanted to touch on before I let you go today, Carolyn, is your your plant nursery intern program. Um, pretty unique idea out there to, to bring some interns on to help protect the threatened and rare plants found across the Blue Ridge Parkway. Yeah, that's, a, that's an exciting project for me because, you know, like the project at Moses Cone or at Bluffs, we're we're preserving and protecting something historic that uh, we want to invest in not seeing it crumble. But the plant nursery intern project is, is an investment in the future. And I love that project because it, it's not looking backwards. It's looking forward. And there's a lot of rare and threatened species found along the parkway. And the plant botanist at the parkway, Chris Olry, has done an amazing job of surveying them, um, making sure he's keeping track and, and watching the impacts to those species through climate impacts or use impacts. And to bring on interns, to bring on youth, <laughs> the next generation, and getting them excited about the plants and the preservation and protection of the species found along the parkway. And planting plants in a, in a greenhouse or a nursery, thinking about investing in how we're going to replenish those things in the future. That's exciting for me because that's a forward-looking um, project that shows that investing in the future is and will make a difference. And it's a fascinating project in light of climate change and how conditions are changing. Um, I was up in Acadia National Park earlier this summer, and some of the research being done there is looking at, you know, what species will be able to, what plant species will be able to survive a warming climate. And um, these are some tough issues that the Park Service is dealing with and and certainly um, help from organizations such as the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is, you know, you can't put a price on that. No, you can't. And and I will say it's because of all the folks in the community, the, our community of stewards, folks that donate, folks that care, folks that go out and volunteer, um, that make all these projects possible. We we don't just think fondly on our memories in our parks, but we all do want to invest in their future. And whether it's the looking back projects of preserving history or historic buildings or the looking forward projects of a plant nursery intern. I think it collectively it's going to take all of that um, and all of us working together to to save them for the future. For sure. We've been talking today with Carolyn Ward, the chief executive officer of the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation that uh, really does so much to help the Park Service uh, maintain the Blue Ridge Parkway along its 469 miles from Shenandoah down to Great Smoky Mountains National Park. You can help them out um, if you're not 
traveling to the parkway, you can visit their website at brpfoundation.org. That's B as in boy, R, P as in Paul, foundation.org, and find a project that uh, resonates with you and donate to them. Or if you're traveling the Blue Ridge Parkway uh, this summer or fall, um, if you stop at uh, the Allegheny Inn in Sparta, North Carolina, the Carriage House at Lynchburg, Virginia, the Chitola Resort at Blowing Rock, North Carolina, Meadowbrook Inn at Blowing Rock, Mountain Air Inn and Cabins, also at Blowing Rock, the Peaks of Otter Lodge at Bedford, Virginia, or the Princess Anne Hotel in Asheville, North Carolina. You can ask them to uh, put an extra dollar on your bill for every night you stay there, and that money goes to the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation to help them with these projects. Carolyn, thanks so much for your time today, and we'll check back later this year to see how um, you're, you're doing with your RFP to find somebody to operate the, the Bluffs Restaurant next year, because I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands of people who can't wait to stop there. Oh, thank you so much, Kurt, and thank you for the work of the National Parks Traveler. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. to our National Parks Traveler listeners. Today, I am here with Vic Wheeler, the Biological Science Technician at Acadia National Park in the Wildlife Program. Mr. Wheeler, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Pleasure. So today, we want to talk about an interesting species in Acadia National Park. So Acadia is known for its sweeping views, its really interesting history with the Rockefellers and the carriage trails. But we want to talk specifically about one species that cause that calls Acadia home, and that is the peregrine falcon. So, for those of us who might not be as knowledgeable about the species, what is a peregrine falcon? So, the peregrine falcon is um, one species of bird that is incredibly charismatic in its display of flight. It, it flies very fast. It um, is. Uh, beautiful in its acrobatics and it's uh, really a, a marvel to, to watch. And it went through a, an interesting um, pass of uh, near extinction um, listing on the Endangered Species Act and then subsequently um, the better part of a recovery process. So it, it's it's had a dramatic um, bit of politics and um, conservation efforts focused on it. So I'm just going to go out on a limb here and assume that we humans had something to do with it almost going extinct. Indeed, the the uh, 
the suspect here is um, generally the consensus is that uh, DDT, a uh, pesticide used um, widespread, was uh, led to the softening of shells and subsequently the reduction of the population. Um, there are other factors that were likely uh, at play here, but the banning of DDT is largely credited for uh, reducing that mortality. And, um, and then the recovery process throughout uh, the country, really, which went through and the 70s and 80s to bring the species back um, across its, its range. And DDT is a pesticide, correct? Yes. And so you have peregrine falcons in Acadia National Park, which is really exciting. Where exactly in the park are they? Yeah, so we actually have uh, several locations in the park. Um, we have four territories that are set up in uh, on cliffs in the park. And uh, right now, three of them are active and um, actually have uh, fledged chicks. So there oh, are wow. currently young peregrines flying around the cliffs uh, in, in the park. And uh, learning how to fly is, is a more accurate statement, perhaps. They are uh, <laughs> a bit clumsy in the beginning, and um, they are getting better, but... <laughs> The, the park was used as a uh, hack site where young or eggs were hatched and the young were reared um, on Jordan Cliffs in the park in uh, the mid-80s. And that continues to be a site that is utilized by peregrine pairs um, to nest, as well as uh, the precipice cliffs um, and valley cove cliffs, and as well as beach cliffs. So those are the, the four sites in, in the park that uh, have had peregrines nesting on the cliff sides. So national parks have a good reputation for helping raptor species especially utilize the natural habitat to survive and thrive. So what is Acadia National Park doing around these peregrine falcon nests? You know, what programs do you work on with these birds? Yeah, we actually have uh, several strategies and, and a few different levels that we try to work on. One is a, a direct management action where uh, the nesting t- pairs are actually quite territorial and they are sensitive to uh, human disturbance. And so we actually have many miles of trails and uh, those trails tend to go through and near the cliff sides where they nest. So we close trails and areas uh, when peregrines are nesting, we open them back up if the territory either fails or once the chicks have uh, dispersed from the area. And so we use that direct management of uh, closing and reopening trail areas. But we also work um, on a couple of other levels. And so one is really just a, a bureaucratic level of working with our partners, other agencies, and uh, in order to get consensus on, on how to move forward and how to work on uh, conservation of this species as well as other species. And so working with our state and federal partners is, is really critical to the entire uh, oversight and, and, and guidance on, on how to best manage and protect these species. So you... the, the next question, of course, is it, they've, they've showed a, a rather dramatic uh, recovery in um, nationally they were delisted off of the Endangered Species Act in 1999. Uh, they do remain listed under the Maine Endangered Species Act um, 
And so we, we continue to close areas and, and manage for a recovery. But the, the question is, as we near a, a more stable and robust population, what are the, what are the next questions? What's the question in the, in the future? How do we, what is their, uh, their interaction with other species and their interaction with the environment? How can we uh, best figure out what, what we need to do, uh, whether it's active or, or passive management? Um, the other thing that the, the park does is uh, running a peregrine watch uh, program which is an interpretive program where uh, people who are either just driving by and happen to be going past precipice cliffs uh, sees a program and, and stops by or others come uh, and, and come specifically for that. We have many visitors who will come every year to come to the Peregrine program where uh, there's an interpreter talking about um, conservation and the, the role of, of these peregrines in the park's history. And, it's a really great opportunity. They're a charismatic species, and it's a great opportunity to, to highlight what's, what's going on and what's been going on with, with these species and, and with conservation of wildlife and other natural resources in the park. That's awesome. How often are those programs run in the summertime? It, it depends, but uh, right now, five days a week. Oh, wow. Every morning from nine till noon. Yeah. And so yeah. if, so so if a visitor who doesn't know anything about birds is interested in the peregrine falcons, the, the park is not only interested in keeping this species here for its own sake and because it's a, it's a threatened and endangered species, but also because peop, it, it's a vehicle that people can use to learn more about conservation of raptors and wildlife in general. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, it's, um, it's, it's really a great... We, what we try to do is um, the peregrine falcon has, has really endured a lot and had a lot of upswings and and being such a uh, charismatic and and easy to identify and, and relatively easy to track species um, we know a lot about them and so we know a lot about the story and how uh, our interactions with them have have really changed the populations of peregrine falcons so you mentioned that Acadia has three occupied territories out of four do you think there's room for this population to grow in Acadia, or have we sort of reached carrying capacity? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, there's peregrine falcons are uh, quite territorial with each other. Um, they don't permit another pair to nest on the same cliff um, or even in the same area, and so they'll actually um, go through territorial disputes. It, Acadia is actually quite small. Um, and so the number of uh, suitable habitat areas that are not occupied aren't known. There are certainly uh, plenty of more cliffs, but whether they fit the criteria to the, uh, the mind of the peregrine is, is unknown. So that's a great question. Um, when uh, peregrines started renesting in Acadia after um, the reintroduction program, uh, they started with just one cliff and then two and then three and then a fourth. Um, and so it's, who knows where that will stop. Um, there was little really known about uh, peregrine occupancy in Acadia before, the, uh, before they were endangered. And uh, because of that, we're not really sure what, what would have been um, a suitable or, or a, a maximum population of, of the time. That being said, uh, we're in a dramatically different time from the 1940s, and uh, 
what is the capacity is completely unknown and, and perhaps even irrelevant a little bit at this uh, stage because it's about what what do these interactions have and knowing that they're the populations will change um, and figuring out what it is to keep those from plummeting so we don't lose species so we don't go through extinction um, extinction is is really rough it's impossible to come back from that um, and so we need to avoid that but what it looks like to have uh, the future of, of peregrines is really unknown and so that's the next next step the next next step in figuring out what the conservation of this species will be I think yeah, definitely. Well, I'm glad that National Park staff and volunteers are continuing to monitor the nest every year, and it's great that visitors and locals alike can, can check it out. So I want to just thank you so much for speaking with us, and we will tune in to the raptor nesting season next year as well. Thank you so much. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. There are dark and scary places in the national park system. Some might think that of Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park in Colorado, a place where the sun's rays only reach the bottom of the canyon at midday, and where the cliffs are so steep and intimidating that few climbers seem up to the challenge. But the views are stupendous here, and the rawness of the landscape wondrous to those whose comfort zone is the inner city. It helps to bring a vivid imagination with you to the park, as there are places dubbed the Devil's Lookout, Pulpit Rock, Dragon Point, Serpent Point, Kneeling Camel View, and the Exclamation Point. Park staff recommend the South Rim Drive, which meanders along the contours for seven miles, passing a dozen overlooks along the way, among them Chasm View, Painted Wall, and Sunset View. The North Rim Road, which is closed during the winter months, is for the more adventurous. Once you've navigated the gravel road from the east end of Crawford State Park that takes you through Grizzly Gulch to the rim, you'll have a shorter stretch of unpaved road to explore. Along with six overlooks, 
This route can lead you to the Dead Horse Trail trailhead at the Kneeling Camel Overlook. The trail offers a five-mile round trip, judged to be easy to moderate by park staff. But if you're willing and have the skills, you can take longer to explore the wilderness with its stands of pinyon pine, Douglas fir, and juniper, along with some outbreaks of gamble oak. Just be aware that there are black bears here, along with the occasional mountain lion. Occasional contributor Lee Dalton wrote after visiting the park that, at any of the many overlooks along the canyon's rim, there's a continual thrumming roar that seems to pervade the very air around you. It's a sound that never ends. If the river's noise is that loud at the rim, half a mile above the rushing water, what must it be like at the river's edge? In fact, some of the early explorers who tried to penetrate the canyon wrote that the noise was frightening, overwhelming, and could nearly drive one to madness. While you can try to hike to the canyon bottom, it's not for amateurs, the park staff notes. On the park's website, they wrote that there are no maintained or marked trails into the inner canyon. Routes are difficult to follow, and only individuals in excellent physical condition should attempt these hikes. Hikers are expected to find their own way and to be prepared for self-rescue. While descending, study the route behind, as this will make it easier on the way up when confronted with a choice of routes and drainages. Not all ravines go all the way to the river, and becoming cliffed out is a real possibility. Poison ivy is nearly impossible to avoid and can be found growing five feet tall along the river. Pets are not allowed in the wilderness. Inner canyon routes are not meant for small children. Indeed, this is a rugged park, one covering not quite 31,000 acres that challenges the skills and abilities of those who park their rigs and hike off into the landscape. Where can you stay? There are no lodges in the park, but there are three campgrounds. South Rim Campground, with its 88 sites, has some electrical hookups during the summer months. North Rim Campground has just 13 sites and no electrical hookups. Both South Rim and North Rim Campgrounds do have room for RVs. The third campground available to you is the East Portal Campground, which is actually within Curacante National Recreation Area, adjacent to Black Canyon National Park. It has 15 sites none with hookups, and none suitable for RVs. Anglers are drawn to the Gunnison River, 200 yards downstream of Crystal Dam, which is within Curacante National Recreation Area that abuts the National Park. The waters have been designated a gold medal water and wild trout water by the state of Colorado, thanks to their brown and rainbow trout. The park also is being recognized more and more for its dark night skies. The International Dark Sky Association, on honoring Black Canyon of the Gunnison as an international dark sky park, had this to say, The park has exceptional opportunities to observe dark skies and has implemented a program of dark sky preservation, education, and opportunities for the public to enjoy the night sky. Put it all together, and at Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park, you have a wilderness setting, one that amazes and can intimidate. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. You can send comments and suggestions for future episodes to news at nationalparkstraveler.org. And to catch up on the latest National Park news, check us out at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions 
have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.